If you would, go ahead and take your Bible and uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter in the book of Philippians is where we are today. We finished chapter 1 last Sunday. And uh, just moving through the series, moving through the book of Philippians, pretty simple, really just kind of dealing with the passages as we go. And uh, today we begin a brand new chapter there in chapter two. All the other messages should be on our website uh, or on our church app. So if you missed one, want to catch up on that. It's a phenomenal book of scripture. And uh, many of you have read through it. Others of you have never really like combed through it necessarily. Just a great, great book of scripture as all of them are, but really, really applicable here. And so Philippians is what we're focusing on here in uh, in these weeks ahead. So one of the things that's just so great about the Bible is that it speaks the truth, obviously, not the truth according to what the world sees or the truth as to what we wish it was. It just tells us the, 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 the flat, plain out truth, right? And uh, we have to make a decision if we're going to walk in it and adjust to it or uh, if we're going to resist it and push it away. But it lays out the truth for us. But there are times where certain passages of Scripture just intersect our lives in such a way where it doesn't always result in warm fuzzies, right? It doesn't always make us feel so great about ourselves. In fact, there are certain passages that intersect our lives in some ways where we realize, man, I've got a lot of work to do in this area. And uh, not just that we have the work to do, but we need to submit to the Lord so that He can do the work in us that's required. And I have a feeling that the passage we're going to look at this morning is going to be one of those passages where we're all in the same boat. We've all got a long way to go, right? And uh, adjustments to make. But thankfully, according to God's grace, we can ultimately get there. So Susie and I have a couple of friends that we've known through the years. We don't really keep as much uh, in touch with them as much as in the past, but Susie worked with her years ago, just really close friends. He and I began, uh, were able to know each other, and he was an encouragement to me. And even though we don't see each other very often now or, or talk to each other much, um, there's a story that came out of their kind of their early marriage and family together that still makes me laugh whenever I think about it. And uh, the story surrounds the birth of their first child. And so they were, uh, uh, they had been married for a little while, they, they had their first baby, and the time was coming for uh, my friend Gary. It, his wife to deliver. And, uh, and so you, you, you can imagine the rush, right, where you've been waiting for nine months and maybe wondering if this is the day, and it wasn't, and finally that, that time came where, all right, this is the day. It's very obvious. Off to the, to the hospital, off to the ER they go, you know, just kind of probably at, at breakneck speed, and they get in there, and they go rushing in, and, and you can imagine probably what the, what the response was, probably very quick-paced, right, and hey, we've got a woman in labor, and the, somebody grabbed a wheelchair, they brought it out, and what happened next is what makes me laugh every time I think about this. Uh, Gary, when he saw the wheelchair, he like plopped down in it. He thought it was for him, and uh, because it can be very stressful, right? And so he just assumed it was for him to the point to where <laughs> one of the uh, hospital workers actually had to say, sir, this chair's not for you. And uh, he had to get up and because it was for his wife who was about to give birth to their first child. You know, the reason that story is funny is because honestly, in a lot of ways, we can relate to it because we have a tendency, don't we, right, to think of ourselves sometimes a little more than we should. Sometimes we have a tendency to put ourselves in first place uh, in ways that we shouldn't. We all can relate to this. We've all been there. We've all done that. In a lot of ways, we all are still there. At least I know that I am. Uh, selfishness is an area of life that we have to do battle with. We have to slay that dragon, so to speak, because of the repercussions that come if we just live our lives out as selfish people. Now, you may be thinking, Brooks, this is a message for somebody else, right? Because I've worked on this already. I'm not nearly as selfish as I used to be. In fact, I don't know that I would even agree with your assessment of me. I, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty unselfish as a person for the most part. Well, let's just walk through 
a little quiz, and, and we'll just have a lot of fun. This is going to be the warm, fuzzy moment of the message. So let's just walk through a quiz. Do not answer out loud, please. It will be awkward, okay? So, and uh, no elbowing those sitting next to you if they're part of your same family. So when you buy cereal or coffee creamer at the store, do you buy your favorite or do you buy your family's favorite? That's an interesting thought, right? Which one do you buy, your favorite or your family's favorite? Here's a second question. Uh, when you park, do you usually take the open space near the front or do you leave it for somebody else? All right, so full disclosure here, um, whenever I go to Kroger, there's a parking place there at Kroger. Which way is Kroger? This way, is that right? I'm directionally challenged. I think it's that way. If not, you know where I'm talking about. There's a parking place at Kroger that is my all-time favorite parking place, and it's been there for years. I'm, I've lived on the island for 20 years, and it's my favorite place and always has been ever since I found it. And it's not in the back. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. It's right up towards the front. And, uh, and would, you want me to tell it's, it's, I'm not going to tell you because then you'll start parking. <laughs> no, I'm, I'll tell you. It's the one. It, it's its own little space. It's like you're the president of the island when you park there. I mean, it's, 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 there's one space there. It's got a curb on this side, a curb in the front, a curb on that side. There's a little oak tree hanging over. I'm pretty sure there's a, the, the, the light at night shines like, oh, right down on that space. And so just a week or so ago, Drew and I were riding. We had to go to Kroger. And, uh, and I pulled in in such a way to where when I rounded the corner, it was open. It's like, Drew, there's a space. And so um, I pulled around, and the truck doesn't have a real good turn radius. So I had to pull in. I had to back out. And then I had to, like, go back into it, barely beat a 90-year-old lady. And go, whoo, got this space, right? And, uh, <laughs> and then, no, true, true on getting the space. The other part wasn't. She was 95. And so... <clears throat> And, but that, that's, you know, it's so easy, right? I mean, don't even think about, we don't even think about like, you know, maybe someone needs this front space. I'm just going to go looking for one that's a little further away. Maybe for you, that's not the way you think. Third question, when you look at a group photo, do you look for yourself first? <laughs> or do you look at yourself longest? Uh, we're not going to get all up in this business, right? Because that really could be interesting. But, you know, you wake, break out that, that, that photo, that group photo that you got of, whether it's extended family or an old, you know, you know, uh, class reunion or something, and it's like, hey, where, where am I? Where am I? Do you do that, or do you look for everybody else first? Maybe some of you do better than most. So the next one, the fourth one, when you hear of a need in someone's life, do you first think of reasons why you cannot help or reasons why you can help? What's the default mode? When you hear that someone at work or in your church or in your neighborhood or even in your family, right, they have a need in their life, do you immediately begin to think why you can't step in to help meet that need, right? Because I'm going to be working late or I've got too much going or the weekend's already full or d does your mind go there first, reasons why you can't help, or do you begin to immediately think of how you can work this thing out to where you can help? Next question. Is there an area of indulgence in your life that you cling to even though it hurts others who are close to you? See, this is where it starts to hit a little bit closer to home, right? The stakes are higher, right, with questions like this. Is there an area of indulgence in your life that for you, honestly, if you take a step back, that those who see it from the outside would say, you know, this is hurting us. Maybe it's in regards to work. Maybe it's the number of hours that you work. Maybe it's the amount of travel that you take. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's some habits that you have in your life, right? Maybe it's some things that you do that aren't healthy for your body and that ultimately are going to have an impact on others. And maybe it is changing the context of your family. 
Maybe it has to do with drinking. Maybe it has to do with playing too much golf. Or I, I don't know. It could be a bazillion different things, right? But is there an area, as you kind of take inventory right now, is there an area of your life that you would say, you know, there's indulgence in my life that I cling to? Some would even say kind of an overindulgence, right, that I cling to, that even though I love it, others around me are suffering as a result of it. Next question, when you don't get what you want, do you roll with it or do you rail against it? When you don't get your way, is it easy for you to say, and is the typical default mode to say, well, you know, that's all right. I'm fine. I mean, you, we'll do it your way. We'll have, you know, we'll do it the way the others want it. It's okay. I mean, this is what I prefer. Nothing wrong with that, but it's fine. You know, we can do it differently. Or is it something that you ultimately kind of internalize and you soak on it and you seethe over it and then you begin to, it gnaws at you and then you get bitter over it. You just rail about why that way was the wrong way and you should have had it your way. How do you typically respond? And the last question, thankfully, because this is getting difficult, in a disagreement, do you care more about being heard or about hearing? When you're in a place of disagreement with someone else, it could be a family member, it could be a coworker, it could be anyone really, but when you're in a place of disagreement over whatever the topic may be, is your, is your first inclination to just kind of pause and take a step back and listen selflessly, right? I want to listen, I want to hear their perspective so that I can gain their perspective. Or is your first inclination more about being heard? And so you speak maybe a little more quickly or a little louder, a little with more, a little more force, right? Because your first desire is for your voice and your heart and your perspective and your idea to be heard over the other person. See, for all of us, when we walk through even just a little simple quiz like this, all of us, I think we can say, are all kind of in the same territory where we are grappling with this thing called selfishness, with this thing called self-centeredness. We all have a tendency to think of ourselves in ways that we shouldn't. And what we find here in this passage of Scripture is that Paul is going to deal with this. He's going to deal with it, and, it's, and, and again, it's for all of us, myself included, very obviously, right? And if we ask those who are closest to us, how am I doing with the whole selfishness thing, you probably need to put on another extra layer of thick skin, and you may want to be sitting down when you ask that question, because we probably have a tendency to think of ourselves more often than we should. So as I was putting all this together, I came across this little informal definition. It was a blog post I saw. I don't even know who it was that wrote it. I didn't come up with this, but I love the way it describes it. When it describes selfishness this way, it says to be concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. That is a great definition, I think, of what it means to be self-centered or selfish. To, To be concerned excessively over the top too much or exclusively to the neglect of everybody else with one's self. That's the way it's laid out. Here's, here's the reason that we often miss our selfishness. If you went through this little quiz and you started out saying, you know, I think I'm going to do okay here because I consider myself a pretty generous person and uh, one who likes to help others. But then when you kind of go through that list, maybe you were one of those that said, boy, this kind of hits me right between the eyes. This sort of hits me in the heart. I think the reason for that, the reason we often miss our own self-centeredness at times whenever we grapple with that is because it's a blind spot in our lives. It's a blind spot. It's not an overt action, right? It shows itself through our actions, but selfishness, self-centeredness is more of an attitude. It's a heart issue. It's a, it's a perspective. It's a mindset. It's not an outward action that we can easily 
see. It, 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 again, it's a, it's a blind spot. A few years ago, I was in an accident with our truck, and it ended up totaled it out, and, um, it, which it wasn't a whole lot. It was just an old truck. And so uh, as a result of that, our insurance company, there was a provision to have a rental car for 30 days or however long it was. And so the truck that I drove did not have this thing called a blind spot detector, right? The truck I drive now, it's, it, I mean, it wasn't around when they made this truck that I drive now. None of our vehicles have this blind spot detector. But when I was in this accident, um, the, the car they gave me to drive through the insurance had one of those blind spot detectors. And it's so cool. I mean, you know what a blind spot is. It's that area when you're driving that when you look in your side mirror, um, you don't see them. When you take a quick glance back, you don't see them. It, they're right there in that spot that is uh, unobservable for you. And, and if you swerve over and you don't see what's in the blind spot, you could have a, a, hori- a horrific accident as a result. So I'm driving this new car that I've got that through the rental waiting, you know, to, to find a new one. And uh, it has this blind spot detector. I'd never driven a car like that before. It was awesome. It was so much fun. I almost rear-ended people in front of me because I'm like checking out the blind spot detector. It was just so cool. Those little lights come on. It's like, oh, there's somebody over there. You know, but the, the, the detector, that's exactly what it does. It shows you the blind spot that you would have missed so that you can avoid the accident that's going to come as a result. We miss selfishness oftentimes, this self-centeredness in our lives that our coworkers see, that our family members see, that everybody else sees. We miss it in us because it's part of our blind spot. It's not an overt action. It is a, it is a mentality. It's a perspective. It's a, it's a heart issue. Look at it this way. So you've got two preschoolers in their little preschool class in daycare. And let's say the four-year-old goes over to the three-year-old and, uh, you know, smacks them and takes the toy. And the three-year-old starts crying. What does the daycare worker do? The daycare worker comes over, or if it's a home, right, and you got two small kids, the parents will do the same thing. It's going to come over, and they're going to go to the four-year-old, and they're going, to, they're going to say, that's not what we do. We don't hit, and we don't take toys from other children. And they're going to take the toy, and they're going to give it back to the three-year-old. Then you got one who just quit crying and another one that's going to start. We're going to deal with the outward. We're going to deal with what we can see, the action. We don't hit. We don't take toys. Stop hitting. Give the toy back. But more likely than not, there's not going to be a discussion about the heart issue of selfishness that drove that whole thing in the first place. And so we miss it. It's a blind spot. But it's not a complete blind spot because Paul deals with this in Philippians chapter 2. And he's going to deal with it elsewhere as we're going to see here in just a moment. And so when we think about selfishness... There's a bigger picture, before we even get to Philippians, there's a, a bigger picture of where we can see the fallout of selfishness throughout the pages of Scripture. It, it was, selfishness is what got Satan kicked out of heaven in the beginning, I, I mean, towards the beginning in the first place, right? I mean, he wanted, to, he wanted to take the throne of God. He wanted to be in the position of God. It was pride and it was selfishness, and, and God put him out of heaven. Scripture says a little bit about that, not a lot. It was selfishness that caused David, Second Samuel chapter 11, to look across the way to the next rooftop over and he saw a woman that he wanted for himself and he sent a couple of his of his workers and said go get her bring her to me he ultimately committed adultery because there was an issue on the inside of selfishness he wanted what he wanted right then and there it was selfishness. Think about this. When you look at the story of the prodigal son we know it was a parable that Jesus told, but if you really kind of look at it closely 
and fine-tooth comb it a little bit, you, you see the story Jesus told of a fellow who, who uh, asked his dad for his inheritance, and he went out to the far country, and he blew it, right? He blew this inheritance, I mean, he just spent it up on all kind of crazy living and selfishness and indulgence and way over the top, and he comes home, and uh, his father has been looking for him and, and, and throws a party because this son of mine that was lost is now found. The son of mine that was gone has now come home again, and if you remember in the parable Jesus told, this wasn't one of the focal points, but when you break it down, he had an older brother, right? this guy did. And his older brother wouldn't come to the party, and his older brother was sitting over kind of in his own room with his arms crossed, and he was seething, and he was sulking, and he was, he was upset. And the dad said to him, well, why aren't you here? We're throwing a party. We're, we're having a great time. I mean, your brother who was lost is found. He's gone. He's come home. And, and what did the older brother say? He said, I've worked for you all these years, and I've done everything you've asked of me, and I can't even have a little party for just a handful of my friends. He said, this is what I deserve. This is what I want. And it was selfishness that caused the older, bro- older brother to miss the celebration. It was selfishness that caused the rich young ruler to choose his stuff over the Savior. Jesus said, if you want to know me, if you want to know eternal life, sell all your possessions, give them away to the poor, or uh, dump your possessions, give them away to the poor, and come follow me. And he didn't. Mark chapter 10 says he went away. He went away sorrowful. He went away grieving. (laughs) Because he had many possessions. And it was that selfishness that kept him from following the Savior. And of course it was selfishness. That ultimately resulted in Judas betraying Jesus. For just 30 pieces of silver. See selfishness. We don't think about selfishness with Judas. We think about what he did on the outside. It was the hard attitude that drove that. And so Paul, writing in Philippians, he deals with this issue, and he deals it in a way that kind of hits not only them, but hits us right between the eyes. Paul, writing from a Roman jail, many would say, about 11 or 12 years after he planted this church in the city of Philippi, He writes this letter to these believers in the city of Philippi, this Roman colony of 10, maybe 20,000 people. There was really no Jewish presence there. The people who lived there uh, were Roman citizens, right, the bulk of them. Their spiritual focus in their life would have been more than likely worshiping the emperor, worshiping Caesar. That's what they did in the Roman Empire in the first century. They considered him somewhat to be deity, certainly to be worthy of worship. And so Paul shared the gospel here a dozen years, give or take, before, and uh, a church is planted. By the time he writes this letter 12 or so years later, this church has a structure to it. And uh, this church has some issue, not a lot, probably the least of any of the letters Paul wrote. But one of the issues you can, you can gather is that there was some disunity, discord going on. He addresses it by name in chapter 4. We'll get there later. But he touches on it here at the beginning of chapter 2. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 1. We're just going to read down through verse 4 today, and, um, and then we're going to move through it a little more slowly in the time that we have left. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. All right, so let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, if... Now, you're going to think that I'm going to be preaching until about 2.30 this afternoon when I move slowly here over these first two words. Listen, we're going to gain speed in just a second, okay? You're still going to be out of here long before 2.30, probably 2.15 at the latest. And so, but I, I want us to look at the very first word to start with and then the second word, and then we're going to, we're going to move on. The first word, therefore. The old preaching thing is, that, and those who, who preach and teach God's word, is that if you ever see the word therefore, you want to ask the question, what is it therefore? Okay? And that's a good little thing to keep in mind because what it does when you see this word, it takes you back to whatever was said earlier to give you some context. All right? So whenever you see the word therefore, you can also replace it today if it helps you to understand. You can replace it with the word because. That helps to understand a little bit of the flow. So if we go back earlier, why is Paul saying therefore? What's he talking about? What statement has he just said that he's about to build on here? I think the statement is in verse 27. We don't have this on the screen behind me, but if you have your Bible there in front of you, look back in verse 27. He tells them to do three things. He says, one, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. All of this we dealt with last Sunday in the message. He also says in verse 27, to stand firm in one spirit, to stand firm in unity. And then he also says as well in verse 27, to strive together for the sake of the gospel. So it seems as though Paul is saying in chapter 2, he's saying, remember, because God has commanded you, Christian, because he's commanded you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, because he's commanded you to stand firm to not backtrack, to not retreat, because he's commanded you to advance the gospel, to strive together to further the gospel. Because he's commanded you all of this, right? Because he's laid this out as a command, then do this in response. Look at verse 2. He says, on top of that then, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So it's like Paul is saying, all right, so, so I've commanded you, <clears throat> live in a way that's worthy of the gospel, stand firm, push together to advance the gospel, and let's put the cherry on top here, make my joy complete by doing that in a way where you are of the same mind, of the same love, of the same spirit, intent on one purpose, the same purpose. See, it all flows together. God's commanded you to do this, this, and this, verse 27 Let's also go a step further and do what it says in verse 2. Let's do that in unity. Now, let's go back to verse 1 for a second. We're about to mash all this together so it makes sense. He says in verse 1, he says, therefore, if. Now, that word seems a little confusing because Paul, the greatest missionary that ever lived, is saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, it sounds like Paul is like, you know, it, it, does he think that maybe there's no encouragement from coming, that comes from walking with Jesus? I mean, is Paul saying he's still not quite convinced? I mean, if there is any consolation of love? No. In your minds, just kind of replace that word if with the word since. Okay? Because the context, the original language would read that way. What Paul is saying there then, in verse 1, he says, since we have the encouragement that comes through Christ. Since we have the consolation of his love. Since we have the fellowship that comes through his spirit, right? Koinonia is the Greek word. Since we have his affection and his compassion as believers. 
So you put all that together, and Paul is making a really, really important statement here in these first two verses. He is saying, because you're commanded, follow me here. I know we're, we're bombing the rubble, but I want you to get this. Because we're commanded to live in a way that reflects the gospel and to stand firm and to push together for, for the furtherance of the gospel. And since you know you have the encouragement of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the, uh, the fellowship of Christ, since you know that you have his compassion and his, his affection, since you have all of that, he says, verse 2, then what I want you to do is I want you to focus on unity. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now there's a principle that comes out of this. If you're a Christian, this principle applies to you. But listen closely. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're here and you're just kind of checking things out and you're beginning to think through what does it mean to know God, but you haven't come to that place yet where you've given your life to Jesus, you're, you're just kind of, the wheels are turning, you're considering it. And even if you're far from God, this principle I'm about to give you applies to every single one of us in whatever setting we may be in. And the principle is this, you can read it along with me. When people are of different minds with differing loves and differing purposes, the conditions are set, the conditions are ripe for disunity. Whenever a group of people has different minds, different loves and passions and values, uh, different purposes and desires, the conditions are set for disunity. Think about this for a second, politically in our country, right? Now, we've got various different groups, but prior, primarily we've got two major groups politically in our country, the Democrats and the Republicans. I think it can be rightly said that when you look at those two different groups, the Democrats and the Republicans, from a political perspective, they are comprised of people with different minds, different loves and sets of values, and different purposes, right? Different motivations. And because of that, what do we have in our nation right now? We have an enormous amount of disunity. In the home, this also applies as well. Whenever you have, let's just say in marriage, you've got a husband and you've got a wife. And they started out on the same page with the same loves and the same mind and the same purposes right in their marriage. But somewhere over time, maybe it was because of the busyness of life. Maybe it was because of certain things that took place. Somehow they began to drift to a place to where that husband and wife that started out on the same page sometime later are now at a place where they have different minds, different loves and, and, and values. They have different set of purposes and motivations in their lives and they are no longer in unity the way they were. In fact, they may be in disunity. And what happens is often one of them will finally come to the place and say, you know what, it looks like neither one of us are in love the way we used to be. We need to go see a lawyer. When in reality, the fix is not going to see the lawyer. Really, the fix is verse 3 and verse 4. Easier said than done, but the fix is verse 3 and verse 4. And in churches, you'll have people who are part of that church family that were one time on the same page with the same mind and the same love and values and the same set of purposes and, and motivations, and yet somewhere over the way, right, they came to a place where they began to see things differently and, and they began to kind of put themselves in little groups where this is what I desire and this is what I desire and this is what they desire. And, and, and ultimately, the response was maybe some of us just need to leave and a new church was started. 
when the result shouldn't have been a new church more often than not. It should have been verse 3 and verse 4. Right, so th- this hits, man, I'm telling you. Sometimes there are those passages of Scripture that intersect our lives in a way that don't bring a lot of warm fuzzies. They, they kind of hit us between the eyes. And this is one of those passages. And so if the remedy then to this disunity and having different minds and different loves and values and different purposes and motivations, if, if all of that which sets the stage for disunity is, is, the, is the case, then then what does verse 3 and verse 4 say if it's truly the remedy? Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. He, he doesn't say do most things, right? He says, and, and you see it clearly in verse 3, he says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Again, what is selfishness? It's considering ourselves uh, either excessively or exclusively to the neglect of others. And Paul says the remedy to that is selfless humility. And he's about to explain a little more, and we'll see next week as to what that looks like, but the remedy is selfless humility. It's putting the other person and their mind and their value and their uh, perspective, it's putting them even ahead of our own. Now, there may not be a place where we can always agree. Chances are we're human. We're not always going to agree on everything politically or in the church or even in marriage, but the mentality here is that we put the other person ahead of ourselves, never compromising truth, never watering down the truth, but honestly, most of the issues that split churches don't have anything to do with the truth of God's Word. It's over a bunch of other silly stuff. Most of the thing that results in broken marriages aren't really truth issues. It's a lot of other stuff. Paul says the remedy to this is to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding, considering the other person as more important than yourself. So Paul had a little more to say on this. You don't have to turn here, but just look at it on the screen behind me. Romans chapter 12, Paul's writing to the Christians in the city of Rome in this instance, and he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Right, Not digging trenches, this is my position, this is my perspective, this is my desire, but he says giving preference to one another in honor. Look in verse 3, that same chapter, Romans 12, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. See, there, there is a place where we look out for our interests, right? You're not a doormat. Your life is of value. He's not saying otherwise. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And how do we do it? By putting them ahead of ourselves. Listen, when, when we get to verse 5 next week, I, I could have done this passage verses 1 through 11, but I chose to break it up because there's a lot in these first four verses. But when we get to verse 5 next week, and I encourage you to read it, you can read it right where you sit right now while I'm talking and I won't be offended. <laughs> because when you look in verse 5 through verse 11, he's going to say, and if you want to know what this looks like, look at Jesus. 
Because the whole essence of of verse 3 and verse 4 is wrapped up in what happened on the cross. When Jesus considered you, even before his own life, giving himself as a sacrifice, dying on a cross, our whole faith system, belief system, Christianity is built on the essence of someone else, Jesus, giving himself uh, in a way that was sacrificial in our place, right, so that we didn't have to. Our whole faith system is built on this principle here of considering others as more important ultimately than ourselves. And we all battle with it, right? We all deal with it in our friendships, in our families, in our workplace, in our everyday lives. We all need to slay this giant called selfishness. And so maybe you go away today saying, you know what? Um, I don't think, after all, I don't think it's, I mean, I did pretty decent on the quiz. Yeah, there are some that caught me by surprise there. But um, I, don't, I just don't really... I don't think this is worth me dealing with because I just, I, I just want things my way. It's just the way I am. It's the way God made me. I want things my way, right? And so you go out, right? You decide, I'm not going to make much of an adjustment here. It's not that big of a deal. What, what's going to be the fallout? James chapter 3, verse 16. Just, just so you know, where does the selfish life ultimately lead? James chapter 3, verse 16. He says, and this is Jesus' half-brother, by the way. He's got, got a pretty good lineage. <laughs> he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. In marriage, if marriage is comprised of a husband and a wife who just constantly are going after what's best for themselves, what they want for themselves, don't expect anything less than disorder. And it getting worse. If a church is comprised of people who only want what they desire, and I want things my way, and I want it this way, and I don't care what the Bible says, and and, and I know that's what it says, but this doesn't apply to us. If that's what makes up a church, expect nothing less than disorder and, and, and even worse. And if the attitude of your heart or my heart is such to where life revolves around us, right? It's my way. My way or the highway? Sounds great, right? But if that's the mentality that drives us, listen, what comes out of the outside is going to be more disorder than order, more disunity than unity in your relationships, and it's probably only going to get worse. Paul does a good thing here. Later, he's going to name a couple of names in chapter 4. And like I said earlier, we'll get there eventually to chapter 4. But he's dealing with this giant, right, this, this dragon called selfishness. And the remedy that he lays out is ultimately for them, obviously, to walk closer with Jesus, but to consider others in selfless humility as more important than themselves, just like our Savior did. So as we close, I want to ask you a question. What area of your life today would you say urgently needs attention in regards to this area? And what is it that you can do in your relationships, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your friendships, whether it's with your, your coworkers or neighbors or whoever, what, what area of your life right now needs this attention and it needs it quickly? And are you willing to say, God, would you teach me and would you help me to embrace selfless humility in my life? And you know what? He'll do it and it might hurt, <laughs> but you're going to be better as a result. Hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, none of this is possible without a relationship with him. He's God who came and he died and he rose so that he can take our sin, take them off the slate, 
replace it with his righteousness so that he can forgive us and be Savior and Lord. And it starts when you say, Jesus, I've sinned that I'm sick of it. Would you forgive me and save me and take over? And he'll do it, I promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for those that are here today who have never made the decision to give their life to Jesus. They may have been in church for decades, but they they can't remember a time when they truly, genuinely came to a place where they invited you, Jesus, to forgive them and to save them and to be their Lord and their Savior. And God, for for any here that are in that place, help them to understand and press on their hearts so strongly that right where they sit today, that if that's the desire of their heart, all they have to do is invite you, Jesus. Saying, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you wash it away and take over my life and save me beginning today, knowing that you'll answer that prayer? And God, for the many in this room this morning who've already made that decision, God, we all understand, every one of us, that even though we're saved in an instant, we're not always transformed perfectly into your image in an instant. It is often a lifetime as you mold us and shape us and bring things to our attention that maybe we're in the blind spot previously. And for some this morning, Lord, maybe that deals with the area of selfishness. God, thank you that you don't, you don't chastise us and beat us down, Lord. But God, you do correct us and you do discipline and lovingly lead us to where we need to be. And Lord, it's often through passages like this. Sometimes, God, we can be so focused on self excessively or even exclusively to the neglect of those around us. And maybe some in this room today, maybe, maybe they need to come home a little earlier from work because others are, self, are, are suffering in their family as they pursue the next raise or the next position or trying to climb that ladder, God. Maybe there are some here today who need to stop a habit that is hurting other people in their lives. Maybe there are some here in this place that need to make some significant adjustments to to the attitude of how they view themselves and how they view others, Lord. I know in my life, this is an area, God, where I need you to to mold and shape and transform because selfishness just seems to come so naturally for so many of us, God. We don't want the fallout. We don't want disunity. We don't want discord. And so, God, help us to be like you like you, Jesus, who didn't regard equality with God, even though you were God, as something to be held on to. But you came in the form of a servant, a slave, and you gave yourself to death for our good. Lord, that's the attitude we need. Selfless humility. May we embrace it. As people spouses, as part of a church, as believers, knowing that through it, Lord, others are going to see you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.